David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. Um, do you know what? Between uh, Nadine's word and, the, and what she said about what she believes God's doing and, and Tavia's word um, about God being faithful to carry on doing what he's doing and him being the God of your story. It feels like we've already done my talk, and um, in that I am speaking from one of the most difficult passages in the Bible this morning, I would argue, um, where David's story doesn't necessarily just take a change of direction, but kind of hits a wall and blood and guts spill everywhere. Um, should we just leave it there? Like, they've already made the points. Um, you know, we could just go for brunch now if we wanted. Um, but let's not. Let's stay. I've written it. What the heck? Um, so to catch you up, if you've missed the story to now, we have been learning about David, this man after God's heart, who's picked from shepherd boy insignificance, and by this moment in the story has got to where he was always promised he would get to. And in the chapters that we're kind of skipping over, he is king, the nation of Israel is established in their promised land. And then we've had these three chapters, actually, that we're skipping over where there's more blessing. There's a more victorious battle, more territories taken. His character is revealed in even more ways to be beautiful. Um, he's even more David, a man after God's heart. And uh, not only has the promise that he's been made up to this point been fulfilled, he's given this new promise that um, this is not just about him being king of a kingdom, this is also about him being um, the originator of a dynasty, the um, line of which a future king was going to come, not just to establish um, a kingdom in a, in a specific place, but to build God's temple on earth and to establish his eternal kingdom. But then we get to the story of David and Bathsheba. And it is interesting, if you know kind of anything about story and, and good story and the structure of story. We're about two-thirds of the way through, and actually, so we should have some indication. Our hero can't win halfway or two-thirds of the way through it. They can't be the hero they're supposed to be and have reached the goal um, that they're always striving for. There's something always goes wrong in good stories. And while this is, I will point out before Logan comes to read to it, um, detail of an important story that believed to be historical events. It is also written with drama, with intrigue, with an encouragement for us to step inside it. So let's do that now as Logan reads to us. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, 
the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants, and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So we've been, we've, we've been doing this, this series kind of quite thoroughly. I'm just going to move this out of the way. Um, and one point that we have labored repeatedly is that the life of King David was deliberately, is deliberately written about to foreshadow Jesus in various ways. And we know, don't we, that all of the heroes of the faith have fallen. Abraham lies, Jacob steals, uh, Moses disobeys, Peter the rock always gets it wrong. But this bit feels a bit different for David, doesn't it? Like, sort of, there's got to be a line about things that you can do and still be called a hero. There is a way we can get around that if we want to keep David's name intact and keep singing his worship songs and sending him royalties. We can diminish what he did. We can, for instance, say it was all Bathsheba's fault. Out there, having her bath, being naked. Martin Luther apparently called her a house devil. I'm quite sure she's been called a lot worse. Poor old David, minding his business, waking up from his nap, getting inadvertently hypnotized by her filthy, naked bath time ways. <laughs> you, you may well have heard sermons like that. I have. Bathsheba the adulteress and how she seduced David for her own purposes. Her character has been the subject of wide interpretation for millennia. So, while 
what we need to deal with is the fact that David is the subject of this story. It would be remiss of me, I feel, to not take an important minute to acknowledge what we do and what we don't know about Bathsheba. She's introduced as a daughter and a wife and named with regards to the men in her life, as was the custom, her father Eliam and her husband uh, Uzziah. The point of what is emphasized is to tell us that she is not sexually available. We know that she is um, married to a Hittite. Uriah is a Hittite, a Canaanite, so it's likely that she is one as well. But her husband is known to be a loyal fighter, and uh, both of them are loyal to the Jewish law, which we know because of that's what her ritual cleansing uh, tells us. Her bath was, of course, not just a bath. It was a ceremonial washing, uh, still observed by Orthodox Jews today's, today, um, required of a woman after her period to mark that this period of uncleanness has ended. So we know that she's spoken for, she belongs to another man, and we know that she was personally devoted to God. You will notice, if you look at the text again, you will notice there is nothing to say that she was doing anything inappropriate in the manner of her bathing. There is no evidence that she strategically positioned herself on a roof or anywhere else that matter to catch the king's eye in a very densely populated city, which Jerusalem is known to be. Uh, roofs, the houses were very close together and roofs would have been extra living spaces and roofs would have been where baths took place because it's where they caught the rainwater. It does sound like she was heartbroken by the loss of her husband. If we look again at verses 26 and 27, it says that she mourned her husband and that it was only after the set time of mourning was over that David sent for her. It doesn't say, which potentially it might say, that as soon as she was allowed, she you know, skipped over to the palace because she was so happy to claim her place as queen. We also know that. Um, which is in the bit that comes after this, that Ed's going to speak on next week, that while she certainly suffered the consequences of this union, she is not included in the indictment that's given to David by Nathan, by God. Um, and we might reasonably assume that she would be if she'd been this willing party in the, in the adulterous affair. We also know that she is pregnant as a direct result of this union. There's no question about um, whether or not this is David's baby. Um, and we also know, or it's very heavily implied, that she's taken an enormous risk by telling a messenger about what's happened. It would have actually been a whole chain of messengers that have been the messenger that she's allowed to speak to, then there'd been a messenger at a gate, a messenger who's allowed into the household, a messenger who's allowed into the presence of the king. The writer throughout kind of labors this detail of the messages involved deliberately to imply this kind of environment of whispers and rumors, a detail to which we're going to return. So we know that this would have been hugely risky for her. Might one of these messengers or the head of the household take charge and disappear this awful woman before she has a chance to ruin David's legacy? might word of this reach Uriah on the battlefield, who um, is only 90 miles away. The worst outcome of what has happened is not a messy family saga. It's absolute ruin or death for her. Regardless of what happens to David, if he doesn't protect her, she has no one and no hope. So what of the nature of their encounter? I should say here, <clears throat> this is heavy stuff. Um, and I'm going to 
address it via linguistic evidence to help us examine the text like we're supposed to. But it, it should come with a content warning. If this stuff is difficult for you personally to hear, you might want to tune out. Feel very free to step out. But we're going to look at the specific verse involved now, which is verse 4. David sent messages to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. That's how the NIV puts it. That's the version that we use. That's how a lot of other versions have it as well. So we could argue from that version that there is an argument to be made that she was a willing party in this union, mainly from what's not here. There's no record of her objecting. But we can also note other things, such as there's no hint of care or affection or woo or love. And many other translations, I think we've got a few of them um, up there, examples of them, put it differently. It says, David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. And interestingly, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the early, uh, early Greek versions of the Hebrew Bible, entirely omits the phrase, she came to him, which is the bit that many people have used that she was a willing party, to argue that she was a willing party in this. And in fact, to take and to lie with, when used in that combination, are the same combination of words that are used in Genesis 34 to describe Dina, if you know what happened in that story, and descriptions of laws in Deuteronomy 22 to describe what we would call rape. It reads a lot to me and to far greater scholarly minds than mine that that's what this was. We certainly know that resistance was not an option for her. The king got whatever he wanted, and it was her duty to give it to him. And so what are we to do with this? It's a very important question. I think, I hope, we know what we would do with this story today. I think we know how horribly prolific the story of a leader in a in a church or in any other position of power, abusing his position of power to take, and how prolific the story has been of how those around him in the church and other places have covered up that damage, don't believe victims, don't give them a name, don't give them a voice, diminish the damage done to them. I am sure we have all watched these documentaries and read these reports. What happened to Bathsheba, to her name, to her reputation, is not new or unique. And we, as Jesus' church, called to be his light in the world, must not be afraid to speak truth and to let his light shine in darkness, to shine over and throughout darkness, and to protect those who need protecting just like he did. If this were today, we would absolutely need to remove David from his position of power that he abused so flagrantly. But it isn't. This moment in David's story requires of us, as contemporary readers, something very daring and very nuanced. Because what we have to, have to grasp is that while the writers were arguably clear about the horrors of his crimes, to them, 
to their worldview, because of their beliefs, the crime that he committed was never about Bathsheba. Her identity and her personhood are both based on who in that day she belonged to. Bathsheba has no identity of her own. She is identified by the men she belongs to. You'll note over and over again, she's not called by her name. She's called woman or Uriah's wife. Even in her wedding announcement later on, even in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, if we could get that up, that'd be great. Thank you, Isaac. A list that remarkably outside of these verses includes other women, a ludicrous inclusion to the her heritage of any important figure, not just other women, sexually improper, Tamar and Rahab are named, Ruth is named, Mary is of course named, but Bathsheba remains the wife of Uriah. She is the wife of Uriah, and this is because this is how the narrator wants us to regard her, somebody else's wife. Because to those writers, the sin that David committed was wanting and taking something that belongs to somebody else. It was unto Uriah that that sin was committed according to the law. This story isn't about Bathsheba. There is no other way to put it than that. David's sin isn't about her. Uriah's death isn't about her. And God's punishment isn't about her. Nothing was about women like her in these days. It is okay for us to be troubled by this text. Be troubled by this, it is troubling. But remember, because ancient Hebrew texts and ancient Hebrew worldviews didn't value the personhood of women, children, outsiders or slaves, does not mean that God doesn't value the personhood of those people. And just because the Hebrew text didn't record his response to the injustice of what happens to those things, in those things, to those people, doesn't mean he didn't have a response. They simply inform us about the lens through which he was viewed in those days. Again, I'm gonna say it again. These texts don't show us the truth or the entirety of who God is, they show us about the lens through which he was viewed in those days. And even then, there's still evidence of God's true nature throughout them. If you look at Hagar, a North African slave who is impregnated by his master, her master at the behest of his wife, who runs away with a baby in her belly in the middle of the desert, destitute, hopeless, Nobody on her side. And she is the first person in the Bible to give God a name. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees me. Our God is the God who sees those who are ignored, downtrodden, abused, and overlooked. He sees them, he draws near to them, and he promises to redeem them. I had a exciting moment this week. Um, I'd been challenged uh, recently to ask for more prophetic stuff. I have at times in my life stretched this muscle quite a lot. I hadn't been doing a lot and I asked for some more. And to encourage you, you know, we've had several examples of it this morning. 
It's just really cool to be used by God in this way. It does require speaking and trying and coming up to pray for people. It does require giving it a go. It rarely happens without some effort on our part, some openness on our part. But it's so exciting to be used by God in this way, not just because it helps somebody else potentially, but also because when it's accurate, it's just an incredible experience of, of faith-building truth. He speaks, he's real, and he's near. So this week, I... Um, it was last week. I'd received a message from Alice, who a few of you will know, and uh, who helped us start this. And she, we're still in touch all the time. She's working for a church. She's about to start training. But she, like, she has stepped it up in her prophetic gifting and things that she's been used for. So I was challenged by this. And I said, right, I need to start doing this more. The first person that came to my mind was somebody who I know a bit. Um, somebody who has... Uh, had actually quite extraordinary success in business, um, whose story is incredible in terms of what she came from. Um, she was sent into care when her dad remarried, I, I think after her mum died. Her mum wasn't on the scene, I'm not completely sure. And this happened all very abruptly. And one day when she was eight years old, there was a, a fire in the family home. And then that same day, her dad told her that he was marrying somebody else and that she wasn't her and her siblings weren't coming with them. They were being sent off into care. I knew a bit of this story. But I asked, I asked God to speak to me for her. Give me a, and I got a, a picture in my mind of her as a child looking through a microscope. And we try, when we get pictures like this, we try to ask God to interpret them for us or to give us a sense of what they mean. And it was a funny one for me because I didn't get a sense of what it meant. For a few days I prayed through it. It was just kind of, it just felt, I mean, maybe because she was a child, it was to do with some old call on her life. And I kind of, I, 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 I didn't know. And sometimes I wouldn't pass on something like that, a bit arbitrary, if you don't know. It stayed with me. So I just, I just sent her a long text. This is what I heard God say. I think it's about <clears throat> how he hasn't forgotten the call on your life when, you know, he's, he's still at work. His timing is amazing. Um, and she wrote back to say, it's absolutely incredible. The day of the fire, when she's eight years old, when the house first started to burn down, on this day that resulted in such horrendous, tragic stuff in her life that God has redeemed so incredibly. She's one of the most generous and philanthropic people I've ever come across. The stuff she's involved in all over the world is really quite amazing. On this day that started it all, as the fire broke out, her dad said to her and her sisters, I'm going to run in and I can get one thing for each of you. Do you know what she asked for? Her microscope. As an eight-year-old girl, she never really knew why she did it. And it's just so encouraging for her as I understand it for me, just this, this picture of how God sees the details of the things and her story of what he redeemed out of that. I have my own very real experience of God in these things. I've told this story before, but not for a while. Um, when I was fresh out of college, barely an adult, I was not a Christian, but I was offered a writing job at a kind of parachurch organization, and a paid writing job is what I very much wanted. And so I went to that, to that organization. And um, the boss of this thing 
was a very charismatic guy, and he told me quite early on that he um, felt that the Lord had really called him to invest in me and to encourage me to come back to the Lord. I sort of, years earlier, had said, oh, this isn't for me, out of um, kind of the experience of my childhood. And um, you may guess where this is going. He, over the next year and a half, very pointedly groomed and abused me spiritually and sexually, and it was something that I didn't tell a soul about. I, you know, kept away from every person I was close to because highly conflicted experience of knowing it was wrong. I was an adult. He was married. I knew what was happening was wrong, but very messy and gross spiritually because of what was being fed to me about God's call on me to be with this guy. And it all blew up publicly and horrendously. Thank God before the days of Facebook. Um, and there was a moment, probably two weeks after this, where, I mean, it's a bit of a blur, that bit, but I was, for the first time, able to pray. And I was alone, and I was consumed by shame. And, uh, but I, something in this moment, I was able to talk to God about what it was I was feeling, and there was a lot of awareness of my own complicitness, my own brokenness, but really what came up for me was fear that this was my story now, that this is how everyone was going to see me, that I was ruined. This was in the days before Monica Lewinsky's amazing TED Talk. This was in the days of what I believed, you don't do this and get to just leave a normal life. You don't get to, I don't get to get married now. I don't get to be seen as anything other than, than that woman for the rest of my life. And it was the first time I ever heard God speak to me. And when I say that, it wasn't audible. It was just something that cut through the pain in a way that I have since come to very clearly recognize as, as the way God speaks but it sort of silenced my experience, and I just heard him say, this is not your story. This is not how I work. This will not be your story. And it's not like there weren't very difficult days to come after that, and it's not like it isn't my story, I'm sure, to some people that still know me, uh, but not to people that matter, and it has not been my story. I do recognize that stories like this, as well as being very heavy, are also very subjective. So how can you believe, if you haven't had an experience like this, that the God of the Hebrew text is like this? Because of Jesus, the real historical, historically verifiable Jesus, and what he is recorded to have done. What he did for outsiders, what he did for women, women who touched him when they were bleeding, women who he touched when they were dead, women who he shared a drink with when they were totally socially and racially outside of his class. They were the uncleanest of the unclean, and by letting them do that, he made himself unclean. 
to those who saw the world that way. Women traveled with him, women sat at his feet and learned from him, women were included, women were celebrated. They were made uh, the first witnesses to the resurrected glory. We know this because of what uh, he said to the woman caught in adultery in John 8, a story so scandalous most of the Gospels exclude it, a story so scandalous popes have throughout the ages refused to let it be taught. When the teachers of the law conspire to and, uh, and set a trap for Jesus by throwing this woman in front of him who is guilty of uh, adultery, who he rescues, who he speaks to with care and dignity and recognition of how she has been misused in their game. God didn't change his mind about women and children and outcasts and slaves. Scratch beneath the surface of any of these stories and we see his heart. We see that this is not just about women, this is about all of us, anyone who feels any experience of being left out, downtrodden, put down and anyone who reads the story of Bathsheba and needs to know how to make sense of the God behind it. Look to Jesus, part of the triune God who didn't change his mind about any of these things. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. <clears throat> that could easily be the whole sermon, but I think it probably would be a little bit remiss of me um, to not look at what the writer was talking about if he wasn't writing to us about Bathsheba's story. So we'll do that quickly. Um, all right, can we have verse one up? Because we can smell trouble straight away. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, -da 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 -da, David remained in Jerusalem. Kings don't stay home. Remember the cry for a king in 1 Samuel 8? Can we have that up as well? Give us a king who would go out before us and fight our battles. Kings lead the charge. They join their men. And David has done this since day one. And then, if we can look at verse two. Sorry, Isaac, I'm making you jump around a bit. It says, one evening he got up from his bed. And so now we're going to read into this a little bit. But I think there's something quite crucial here that we need to see. He spent the whole afternoon in bed. He's not in a good space. He's low. He's forgotten who he is, or maybe having got there after all this fighting and all this waiting, who he has been made isn't quite what it was cracked up to be. Maybe he's still grieving Jonathan, his best friend who swore a covenantal oath of love to him. Maybe being at the top, having reached where he was supposed to get to, just feels quite empty without his brother there. It's been the experience, hasn't it, of uh, those who, uh, who reach the peaks of greatness and, and tell us about it, that if it's the, the mountain, the climb, the prize, the status of getting to the top that's motivating you, it can be very disheartening to get there and realize there's not actually anything there at the top. Um, his access to the palace roof higher than all the other roofs. It's designed for him to oversee his people and protect them. But he's using this position to do something else. He's forgotten 
what he has been given and called to. He's forgotten the glory and the riches, the victory, the promised land, the six wives and children he's already been given, a whole dynasty that he's been promised. He's forgotten all that and he wants more. And once he has taken it, and as the chips start to fall, he's no longer this wise and considered and loyal person that we've been told about all the way through First and Second Samuel until now. He's no longer the David who, when Ben spoke about it, who twice forgoes the opportunity to kill his persecutor Saul, who shows such patience and faith in waiting for God to unfold his plans his way. He is now erratic and impulsive, and he's weaving, weaving a web of sin and destruction so great, it almost starts to make his original crime look like the smaller one. Uriah the Hittite probably deserves a little bit of airtime too. <clears throat> we should know he's not just any old soldier. He's one of David's um, 30 or so mighty men, uh, described in, later in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles. Um, these guys who were like his best, his bodyguard, they fought side by side with him. They're marked by their loyalty. And it's quite likely that the writer wants us to see that he actually knew what David was doing between all the, the details of the whispering messengers and how Uriah refuses to go home. Um, it's, it's hinted at that he knows exactly what has happened. But he, just like Bathsheba, has no agency to fight this thing. David is the captain, king, judge, and executioner. There is nothing he can do but be who he is. Uriah the Hittite, the honorable man, who returns to the battlefront with his death warrant in his hand. I think that the writer deliberately wants us to be haunted by Uriah's awareness, like Banquo's ghost, if you know Macbeth. It's the blood of the knowing on David's hand, not caught by surprise, not a quick mercy killing he didn't see coming, but a resigned acceptance of his fate. It somehow makes it even worse. David has done another terrible thing in a series of terrible things. Envy, lust, gross sexual misconduct and malice, taking what is not his, abuse of power, lying, cheating, conniving, conspiring, corruption and murder. But what the writer wants us to see here is that his ultimate crime is that he reached for more than he'd already been given. He tries to rewrite the rules of moral acceptability. He tries to make himself God. In fact, the writer wants us to see how closely this resembles another story. The words used when David saw the woman bathing and said that she was beautiful. The word for saw is ro'o. The word for beautiful is tobe from the root tov. The exact same words used throughout Genesis 1 for God seeing his creation and declaring that it's good. David saw <clears throat> that she was good and he took her. Does it remind you of anyone else? Just like Adam and Eve, who were given everything, dominion over the garden and all the animals living in it, 
all but one tree, and yet Adam and Eve took from it all the same. And just like Adam and Eve, David's now going to move from a time of blessing into a time of curse and frustration, which we will hear more about next week. And just like them, David's story points to the one that is coming. David is another Adam in this story, but a new Adam has been promised. This moment in the story of David has been intricately crafted to show us the sickness, the fault line that runs through all of us, even wonderful, honorable, loyal, musically virtuoso, worshipful, mighty man of God, King David. The sickness for us all is this loss of identity, of our grasping for more than we've already been given, of our trying to make ourselves God. This story is repeated over and over again with different variations throughout the Bible. This story is repeated in all of us. We're not meant to read this and abhor David for his feeling. We're meant to read it as a story about every one of us. But the new Adam has come to own it all, to repair the fault line, to bridge the gap, and remind us over and over and over again that we have been made new. He gives us a new identity, a new belonging, and a new story. He didn't do this from afar. He didn't just declare, right, I'm going to change it all now. I'm going to make it all right now from the heavens. He came down and he got in the dirt with us. If we just look back at uh, the genealogy for a minute, this is what's so striking about who is and isn't included. Prostitutes, sexually deviant women, and David. Not David the king, David the mighty, David the worshipful. It says David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Jesus was not afraid to be associated with the broken and soiled and sinful things of the world. And he calls all of us his. It really is what's so silly about the way that Christians go to all this effort to pretend that there's nothing wrong with us. If a raper and a murderer can be owned, can be the line of Jesus, the house, the family that he associates his name with, then it's definitely there for you too. Um, you're already up here with Tava and the, and the flyboys like to return. Um, one thing I, I really felt during the worship was that there were a lot of people came up for prayer last week. It was very exciting. And even before Tavia said what she said about you wanting to know that God will continue to do the work that he's doing in rewriting your story, I, I really felt like, particularly if you came up last week, he wants to do more, that there's things that are going to keep going. Um, But Nadine's word about um, 
God not doing this thing to point out the way that we fail, but being with us to give us strength and to bless us and to call us forward in the things that he's given us. It just feels so spot on. So let's just take a moment. Um, we'll sing a song, as we often do, and I invite you to, as you stand, maybe you don't even want to sing, maybe just ask him what he's doing. Ask him what he wants to heal in you and restore in you and speak to you about this morning. Let's stand. <laughs>